Jensen presents the Keith Lowell Jensen Show with Keith Lowell Jensen. Hey, here we are. We're back again. Uh, wow. You know, I hope that my voice doesn't cut out. I can't whisper. I've got uh, I've got allergies. My eyes are all puffy. It's good this is audio only. And when I try to whisper, my voice just disappears completely. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how I do with all this talking. Maybe I'll make my guests do more of the talking today. Um, let me... Before I introduce our guest, thank our wonderful sponsor, Burley Beverages at burleybeverages.com. I hope you've gone and checked them out. Remember, you can use that KLJ rules written in all caps with a Z instead of an S at the end to get 15% off. Uh, You can use that at their tasting room or online. If you are in Sacramento, go by their tasting room. They have all the social distancing stuff in place. Uh, so they'll keep you safe, and the place is really cool. Um, yeah, hey, hey, guest of mine, Johnny Taylor, have you been by? Uh, have you been by Burley Beverages Tasting Room there on Del Paso yet? I have not, uh, but I would love to go sometime. You, you, you love the Burley Beverages. I know you and I have been. Uh, we've performed at events together where they were performing. Uh, they were providing the beverages. Yeah, I've done a bunch of shows where uh, they were in uh, definitely in force. Yeah, they're it's good stuff. Yeah, good people too. Yeah, you now now I've I've often said on the podcast that I like them uh, from the point of view of a non-drinker. It's cool to be offered something kind of cool, you know, instead of just like here's a soda uh, to get like a cool mixed drink or whatever that's non-alcoholic is pretty nice. But as a drinker, have you had their alcoholic beverages that they make? Yeah, yeah, I have. Uh, yeah, it's delicious, and you know I love soda too, so. So that it's stuff works good for mixing. Double good. Nice. Uh, all right. Uh, and hey, listeners, it's great hearing from you guys. Those of you that have dropped me a line on Facebook or Instagram or Friendster or GeoCities, Tribe, uh, it's always good to hear from you. Uh, thank you for the recent downloads from St. Louis, Irving, Texas, Brooklyn. Ah, that someone's listening in Brooklyn does my heart good. That's when people talk about the uh, the motherland, you know, the home country. For me, that's Brooklyn because my whole family grew up in Brooklyn. I, I had a Brooklyn accent until uh, I was probably about second grade just because the people that taught me to talk talked Brooklyn. Uh, hey, in Seattle, San Jose and LA, and then a bunch of cities all around Sacramento. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for supporting. The best thing you can do to help this podcast is to subscribe and to leave us a review. Those things help us so much with the algorithm. You don't even know. Makes all the difference. Gets us out to more listeners. And apparently it's happening because we're really hitting our stride and growing each week here. So that's awesome. It's my birthday. It's almost my birthday. It's three three days and a few hours away from my birthday. But, um, you know, I, uh, I had my wife on for the Valentine's Day episode. And I want to do this. I want to do special episodes like for my birthday. And uh, on Father's Day, I'm going to have my dad on. And uh, on Mother's Day, I'm going to try to have my mom on. She says no, but I can be real persuasive, pushy annoying. Um, But for my birthday, I'm super excited about my guest because he's my birthday twin, uh, one of my best friends in the world who I share my birthday with. Let me tell you about him. Johnny Taylor is today's guest. I saw Johnny his second time ever on stage. And I'm not kidding you when I tell you that that moment, I knew that there was something special there. In fact, I put him up even though he had only performed once before because I kind of got a sense there was something special there even before he performed. There There was an intelligence and a spark to him. 
It definitely showed up on stage. And then he raced through the comedy milestones with a speed that upset more than one veteran comic that he passed up on the way. Uh, In short order, he ended up opening for folks like David Tell, Robin Williams, Brian Pesane. And just two years in, he recorded his first album, Tangled Up in Plaid. When you're two years in, you're not even supposed to have a solid hour yet, much less be ready to record one. That album was released on Stand Up Records, who went on to produce his uh, next two albums after scoring in the top 10 with that one on iTunes. Uh, They released Bumming with the Devil, which went to number one in 2018. And the third album they produced and recorded isn't out yet. It's coming out this summer. And I believe, uh, Johnny, it's going to be called Confetti, is it not? Confetti. Yep, that's it. First first place you're hearing it, uh, that is the name of the new record. Awesome. I'm super, super excited. But it's not, you know, you had Tangled Up in Plaid and Bumming with the Devil. Is Confetti a reference to another rock album that I'm not familiar with? Or did you break the, I, I the bro- chain? I, bro- I broke the chain. Uh, yeah, I went with Confetti because uh, it just seemed fun. You know, it's it's part of a bit I do. And uh, most confetti. people... Oh, what a- oh, my God. I forgot the bit until you said that. That's the worst <laughs> bit in the world. It's so dark. Yeah, most people that hear uh, hear confetti is the new uh, new title for the record will will know immediately. Uh, yeah, what it's referencing. Uh. <laughs> um, cool. And that album was recorded in Austin, Texas. Yeah, Austin at the Velveeta Room, and uh, yeah, one of my favorite places to perform. And you were telling me that it was uh, it was a particularly loose, uh, heavy drinking, just getting getting a little crazy on stage at maybe uh, a little less tight and disciplined than your other albums. Oh uh, yeah. It's not, not even near as tight as the first two records, uh, but in but, a good way. Yeah. It has definitely this, uh, fun live comedy show, uh, vibe that the first two records, I think, I don't think they lacked that. I just think this one, uh, seems more like a Thursday night show where, uh, some friends are in from town and uh, you might get a little too drunk to perform. Right, right. But you do it, in, <laughs> but, you, but, but you do it anyways. Before I get into my, my usual interview and getting your story stuff, I read, tell me a couple of your favorite stand-up records that do stand out as, as being a little different or, or capturing that live feeling. Cause I know uh, you're a big fan of stand-up specials and albums. Yeah. I think probably Mitch, Mitch Hedberg's second record, which, uh, you know, is great for what a lot of like traditionalists would consider all the wrong reasons, because it's not like he kills uh, on on that second record, but it's so fun to hear like one of the geniuses of, you know, the, the last 30 years and stand up kind of going up there and just doing what they want to do. And I think that's to a degree kind of what I did with this last one. Uh, I, I held myself, uh, to no rules and, you know, I do a little bit of riffing. I do a bunch of crowd work and it's just kind of, it's just kind of fun. And I think, you know, there are, they're not necessarily my favorite records, you know, but there's this special quality, this special magic that a live standard performance has. And I like when people kind of capture that, you know, I think, honestly, I think, you know, uh, one of my favorite records of yours is live at Luna's. And I think that has that, or I think it's called to the moon. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, which was, you know, I think your first record, but it has kind of that 
it's just a little more playful than I think uh, the rest. And I think it's because you, you, you know, you go out there and you don't exactly know what you're doing because it's your first time doing it. So I don't even remember which bits they were now, but I swear to God, there were a couple of bits that I wrote that day and I got all excited about them. I was like, Oh shit, I'm going to do that on stage tonight. Cause then why not? You can edit it out if it doesn't work. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I mean, we did three shows for this album and, uh, I think in my editing notes, I, I described the first, I was like, I liked most of the first night. I liked a lot of the second night and the third night, there are some absolutely amazing moments that I don't even remember. Nice. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's going to be that kind of record, but yeah, I'm super excited about it. It's, it turned out kind of exactly how I envisioned it, which is terrifying because I, it turned out exactly how I envisioned it. Nice. Uh, you know, we, we were talking about first albums, uh, you you were recording as i mentioned in the intro you were recording an hour when people didn't in fact a, a comedian that we both respect and look up to challenged you in the green room you were like yeah i'm working on my hour and he was like you don't have an hour and you were like no i think i do and he's like you don't trust me <laughs> and then yeah a very short time later you were recording that hour did you have to put that hour together doing 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there. Cause that my first album is a patchwork of 10 minute bits uh, or 10 minute sets. I, I yeah. couldn't get anywhere to give me an hour until I recorded it and proved I could do an hour. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're new and I was, it, you know, you're, you're, you're scratching for seven to 10 and you right. know, a lot of, a lot of the shows weren't great. You know, I was working these shows, you know, working this material out at Luna's, you know, for, you know, sometimes it'd be 40 people, but sometimes it'd only be seven or eight, you know, all and, comics. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was a, it was definitely a challenge, but I, you know, I didn't know any better, you know, I was just, I was like, okay, this 10 minutes sounds pretty good. Like let's try to work on these, new, these other 10 minutes. And, yeah, and, and, you know, the, I think the couple months leading up to the recording, I, I tricked enough people into giving me like 45 to an hour so I could really kind of stretch it out and see. And, you know, it ended up coming in right at an hour and uh, I like Tangle Up and Plaid. I still, you know, there's some things I would change about it now looking back, uh, but I like it. You also self-produced it. Right. And then Stand Up Records heard it and decided to release it, which is really unusual. It's not generally... Dan Schlissel over at stand-up, that's not his normal MO. Yeah, and the, the funny thing is Dan had no idea I'd only been doing stand-up for two years. He Right. Or he probably, if he went into listening to it with that knowledge, he might have just been like, no, you know. But right. <laughs> it, it, he didn't have any preconceived notions. And, it, and it's, I mean, I still have people on Twitter that will tell me, you know, that's one of their favorite stand-up records and, which is cool, you know. It, yeah. it, it at least means it doesn't suck, which is always the the low bar. Nah, it holds up, man. I like to go back and listen to it every once in a while. I'll be working on a project or something, be like, ah, I'll throw that on, have some laughs with old Johnny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, and it's I do the same with your shit. So, uh, so happy birthday, man! Thanks, dude. Another so one. You were, another one down. You were born March fifth, nineteen seventy seven, in Circle City Hospital, Corona, California. Yep. People might think, whoa, Keith went deep on the research. But um, most of those facts are true of me as well. I was born uh, March 5th, 1972, Circle City Hospital, Corona, California. Yeah, uh, I don't know what, what the odds of funny, that are. 
Yeah, what a funny coincidence. We we didn't meet in Corona, of course, and became good friends many years later. And then one day I saw Corona listed on your Facebook. I was like, why does it say Corona? <laughs> yeah. uh, you you didn't stay in Corona long, though. No, I was just, I was small when we left. Uh, but yeah, that's, I mean, my whole family, all, all my siblings were born in uh, either Corona or in Riverside. My sister, Deanna, was born in Corona. We were the two that were born in Circle City. And the uh, the other two were born in Riverside proper. Do you feel a connection to Corona still? No, I mean, my family, you know, lived in Riverside. So I definitely, uh, I do feel a connection to Riverside, uh, but okay. mostly just in passing. I'll see like a basketball player, or a baseball player that's from Riverside. And I'll be like, hey, that's my, that's my hometown. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where'd you go from there? We went to Oklahoma. Uh, we actually lived in Oklahoma when I was a real small kid and I have literally no memories of it, but, uh, my dad, my dad's family's from Texas and Oklahoma. So, uh, we lived there briefly and my mom was like, fuck this shit. And we came out. <laughs> Thank God. My, How, mom, uh... my mom was forever saying, fuck this shit to places. And oh, good. Were- <laughs> well, you uh you have a grandfather i'm not sure on which side who is uh who was a country western singer correct yeah my my mom's dad was texas rex turner he had a band called the westerners and uh yeah they, they end up like having some top 40 hits and uh i know patrick skiffington uh has made it a like a personal journey to collect the 78s from uh texas rex and the westerners i think he's got six or seven of them so oh that's incredible yeah, it's pretty cool. Oh man! So you got to make sure he uh, leaves those to you in as well. I'm pretty sure we're going to outlive him. Yeah, I uh, think he bought. I think he bought them for me, and was just you know coronavirus hit, and we haven't seen each other. Right. In a, haven't seen each other in a year. So where's the first town that you have memories of? Where Where's the formative years for Johnny? Really, Reno, Nevada. That's what I uh, thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reno. I th- went to elementary school in Reno. That's a dirty little town. Yeah, I, I don't like Reno so much. Uh, I never did. <laughs> Sorry, know, listeners in Reno. We have a yeah, good time there. When we perform there, we have a great time. Yeah, I, and I, I have now fond memories from performing stand-up there, but uh, it's a terrible place for a kid to live. I mean, your parents are, like, honestly, there's nothing to do for kids in Reno. Right. Uh, so that's either, like, crime or suicide. And, uh, you know, luckily I escaped before... Uh, I did either one. You have uh, a great story. I was wondering if you could could share with us about uh, one of your first times as an entertainer uh, when your mom amassed a crowd for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, having yeah. a Tupperware party. Yeah, my mom, she uh, she quit her job and she became a Tupperware uh, lady, a Tupperware person. And, and I don't, uh, I don't know. Do we have to explain that to, to g- any Generation Z folks listening? Is Tupperware party still a thing? Yeah, I, I don't think so. But I mean, I know Pampered Chef part. It's kind of like Pampered Chef, except with Tupperware. Okay. You know, now Tupperware has been mass marketed and you can buy it anywhere. But at the time, Tupperware was the shit. And, uh, you know, people would have these parties, invite a bunch of friends from the neighborhood over. And it was really just an excuse to drink wine and, you know, make a make a little bit of money on your side hustle. So my mom was doing that. And, uh, you know, there was a crowd. I was just a little kid. I was like five or six. And I was like, oh, I need to perform for this crowd. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I didn't know any jokes, really. Uh, I didn't know how to sing uh, necessarily. 
So I decided I was going to strip because I had just seen flash dance and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, why not? Right. And uh, no, I knew, I knew flash da- dance existed, but even though I was five years older than you, I had not seen flash dance. Were your parents pretty loose with what you watched? Oh man, we watched, I remember, I mean, one of my first memories of going to the movie theaters was seeing the first nightmare on Elm street. Yeah. There was, oh my God. There was literally no restriction on okay. what we were watching. So yeah, we had a Betamax and I'm pretty sure, you know, we, we had like the flash dance. My dad worked at Jimco, So we had, you know, good access to all the new video cassettes that were coming out. So <laughs> uh, yeah, we, I watched crazy shit, but yeah, flash dance. I remember being like, Oh yeah, I'll do what that girl was doing. And uh, yeah, I was surprisingly good. For a, for a five or six year old. I mean, I think oh, I, you got a lot of tips, huh? I probably made more money than my mom that night. Honestly, <laughs> uh, she probably didn't make that much. So, uh, in that story, I've seen you kind of play around with the ending of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there was, I mean, there's, uh, I think that story, Went went through five or six different uh, punchlines to get out of it. That's the neat thing about being uh, on the road with someone or performing with someone a lot is getting to watch a joke grow and evolve. And um, but the ending of that one, we got hit when we were kids. I talk about that in some of my jokes. We were a generation that got hit. But um, I mean, you talked about. Oh, I remember one punchline that I thought was so funny was uh, your dad taking off his expensive watch before he beat you. Yeah, yeah. I think that ended up being what went on bumming with the devil, which, uh, it, you know, he, he didn't want to hurt his watch. Right. He, he, <laughs> he had no probably hurt, problem hurting me, but his watch was like, let me take this off first. That's when I that know was, I was about to get beat. That was valuable. That was something he valued. Right, right um, exactly. And at one point, I think you backed away from this, but at one point you described him hitting you with Hot Wheel tracks. Yeah, yeah. That that one would, uh, you know. Uh, too dark. Too har- too harsh. People people, people would like recoil in horror. And I'd be like, well, now, now the punchline has become an escape line. Right. Where, you know, <laughs> you know how that is where you're like, I need to get out of this bit. And yeah. uh, you know, sometimes when the punchline hits weird, you know, you just got to escape. <laughs> uh and you you tow that line a lot though i mean you play with some dark subject matter and see kind of how far you can push it you have a joke it's funny it's my dad's favorite joke of yours and he'll he'll request it uh but you have a joke about dealing with anxiety when you're a kid yeah um, yeah i'm, I'm not going to keep triggering you to tell your jokes i promise but but why don't you go ahead and yeah, Explain well, I, that one. I mean, the gist of it is, yeah, I've had anxiety my whole life. And uh, uh, the, the gist of the joke is uh, explaining how uh, when I was a kid, I used to freak out about the idea of my parents dying. And uh, it's a true story. It would keep me up at night. I would I would think, like, what am I going to do? Like, they're, they're, they provide shelter and food. Uh, they're like my best friends. I'm just a little kid, you know. And uh what do, what do I do? Uh, you know, what am I going to do when they die? And it, it would literally keep me up uh, in bed. And uh, then I explained that my parents are both dead now. So, uh, you know, that's a huge weight that's been lifted off my shoulder. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, that, that is, uh, you know, that's a joke that honestly, you know, took a lot of zhuzhing 
to get to work, but I'm proud of that one. And for the most part, it does quite well. I remember you and I, we've performed in some unusual circumstances, but we were doing a thing called delivery. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we end up at these people's house and it's, it's mom and dad and this like seven year old. (laughs) Yeah. And you are not good at editing your material for children. (laughs) (laughs) You're not a children's entertainer. And you told that joke and you were like, uh, it, like coming out of it, like, uh, you ever have anxiety, kid? I'm thinking she does now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's funny. Uh, yeah, I talked about it on a podcast uh, maybe six or seven months ago, and it gets quoted on Twitter a lot, and they tag me in it. Uh, but uh, I said, you know, when, when someone leaves my show, I want them to go home and have an existential crisis. Right. And, and uh you know, and it doesn't, regardless of age, you know, right. You're never seven you're to ne- 70. I just yeah. want to hurt you. Yeah. You're never too young to, to really have to think about shit. <laughs> so, um, not, not all the dark makes it into the act or at least has yet. I know, um, your mom struggled with mental illness and that you had to deal with that. Uh, and, and that that was a real heavy thing in your childhood, that it was a pretty rough childhood at times. Yeah, yeah. I was, I mean, I was the youngest of four. And so, you know, when my mom started really struggling with her, with her mental health, I was the only one left in the house, you know, Uh, they had all moved out and were adults and uh, I was still at home. And so, yeah, it became quite a, uh, quite a challenge as a kid to kind of deal with that. You know, she, she, I mean, she was hospitalized multiple times in my childhood for, uh, uh, you know, effects of her mental illness. Before she was hospitalized, was there a period where your siblings maybe didn't understand that you weren't dealing with what they dealt with, that it was different? Right. Yeah. I, you know, honestly, I think they still kind of struggle with that realization of, uh, right. you know, you and, and God, you know, I, I don't blame them. It, it's one of those things where their their experience was, was a little different than mine was. You know, and, and they had their own things that they had to deal with that I didn't because I was a kid. But at the, at the same time, you know, I, there's definitely some revisionist history, you know, Uh, I'll see, I'll see my parents, uh, you being referenced, you know, by my siblings on social media and I'll be like, yeah, I loved them. I loved them to death. And they, they were great when things were great, but it was challenging. It was a challenging childhood and, you know, I'm not going to revise history just because I loved him so much. Right. Yeah. You can accept people as human and flawed and struggling and everything else and, and still love them. But uh, a lot of people have a hard time doing that when it comes to their parents, because part of accepting their flaws might be accepting that they maybe weren't as good of parents as they could have been. Right. And, and, you know, however bad it was for me, it was worse for them. You know, they were the ones dealing with it. And uh, uh, I, I feel bad that they had to, you know, for so many years. But at the same time, you know, uh, it def- definitely is a reflection on how I grew up. So can, can I ask you? Sure. 
I, I don't want to betray things that you've told me in confidence on long drives through the desert at night or whatever. <laughs> right. right. Um, but, but what are some of the kind of specific incidences that, that you recall as a kid that were like, wait, this isn't normal. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's funny cause I, I didn't know it wasn't normal at the time cause I was just a kid, you know? So right, right. it was, it was, uh, you know, my, when my parent, when my mom would have like, I'm a, a real bad bipolar episode uh she would go into this thing called uh hyper religious uh behavior and basically it's she would behave as if she was like uh you know a prophet of god or uh one of the you know stories in the bible and she i remember her telling me i talk about this on my last the last record i just recorded in austin uh, okay where you know she told me i was john the baptist and right. went so far as to like actually have me baptize my siblings in the bathtub. And, uh, you know, looking back, that's fucking crazy. But at the and time, your siblings I, are adults at this point. They're, I mean, they're teens, you know, and, and, and they're just rolling with it. Yeah. They're just like, I guess, you know, I guess mom's Jesus, you know, they, <laughs> you know, I think uh, they were either, you know, just trying not to start waves or they were super bored and like, like cosplay. I don't know. But it's one of those things where, uh, you know, they they went along with it. And and me, I'm just a kid. I, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I was just like, I'm John the Baptist. I remember like walking around being like, I'm John the Baptist, you know, <laughs> like singing uh, John the Baptist, you know, nursery rhymes to myself. And so, yeah, I mean, as I look back on it, I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, what a what a mess. And when did that start? When did you start being aware that this was uh, not normal, that this was something pretty, was amiss? Pretty young. Uh, I remember, you know, as being like young as eight and nine okay. and, being, and being like, man, I, you know, I think, I think mom uh, might just be sick. You know, I think she might, might need some help. And I remember being so relieved when, like she started getting treatment and yeah, yeah. She, she would go on meds that would work, you know, but that's the thing. It's like a lot of times people will go on meds and then they'll feel better and they'll, they, they'll convince themselves that they feel better because they're better and not because the, the drugs are working, you know? And uh, so she would go off her meds and she would go off her meds and she'd be okay for a little bit. And then, you know, two months later, you know, we're right back where we started. We don't want to be ill. I, I, with just physical ailments, not even with mental ailments, like with my colitis, right. for the first few years of it, I, I would constantly take myself off the drugs just to see if I still needed them. Uh, one doctor, I think, made the mistake of saying to me that people either seem to get worse or they get better and it almost goes away. And he said it to me very casually. I'm the kind of guy that, does research and then talks to a doctor about, Oh, have you seen this study and that study? So <laughs> I don't think it occurred to him that that was a bad thing to say to me, but so I didn't get worse. So I was like, well, maybe it's gone. And I right. it was constantly going off the drugs. And I remember talking to my boss about it and he was like, well, why what's, what are the bad side effects of the drugs? And I was like, the only side effect of the drug is that I don't shit blood. Like, right. <laughs> and it cost me money. And he's like, awesome well then take the effect. drugs. <laughs> right. But we don't, you know, it'd be better if I wasn't sick. I would feel better if I wasn't someone who was dependent on a pharmacist and healthcare 
I, you know, without health insurance, I'm screwed now because I have this thing that I need to keep me alive. So I can only imagine with mental health, how much stronger of an impulse that would be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I can only imagine. And, you know, luckily, and I, I don't have like a mood disorder like that. I, I have anxiety and, uh, I've battled depression in the past, uh, but I, I've never, you know, been diagnosed with anything, uh, the same, same thing as my mom, which would, you know, be difficult. And sometimes does, it's hereditary, you know? Yeah. Does that worry you? Yeah. Is that one sure. of the things you have anxiety about? For a lot of years it did, you know, and they say usually if it's going to hit you, it'll hit you in like your mid twenties to your, right. your early, your early thirties. And, you know, now Friday I'm going to be 44. So, uh, hopefully we're out of the woods. Who knows though? Yeah. You know what I was going to, the way I I worded to ask you in my notes here was to ask if this was something you were going to try to explore in your act. I have not heard the new album. I'm looking forward to it. Um, So I guess the answer to that question is yes. Uh, Tell me about talking about that on stage and what that's like for you and if, if we'll be seeing more of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it was difficult and, you know, working that material out, uh, was challenging because, you know, it's, you got to have a, you, they, they have to be on your, really on your side first to let you be vulnerable sure. like that. And, uh, so, you know, it's much later in the set when I'm already kind of rolling, but it's, uh, yeah, it's challenging. And, you know, I mean, my act is my life to a degree and, uh, why not, you know, kind of explore, the humor in those situations. So, and there, honestly, there's a lot of it, you know, and there still is, you know, I'm, I'm during this pandemic, I'll probably have a new hour uh, by the time we're out of it, just because I've been writing so much uh, over the past six or seven months. And, right. You know, the first part of the pandemic, I didn't write at all. I just didn't have anything to write about. And it's funny about six months ago, I just started writing a lot of new stuff and, you know, it's a lot largely untested. I've done 10 shows in the past year and, uh, I can't wait to get back out and really talk about this stuff. Right. Um, definitely looking forward to it. Yeah. You know, I'm, uh, obsessed with the band Fugazi. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I was just watching another YouTube, you know, amateur documentary on Fugazi. Like I do like, while, <laughs> like, like while you're recording this, yeah, that's what I've been doing. When you're talking. <laughs> you're no, 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 no. Just recently, but but you know they they had the thing where they wouldn't charge more than five dollars for a show, right? And I heard Ian McKay explain it in a way that I hadn't heard before, and it it kind of made me think of you and I when we do smaller shows, when we do mic things like that. He said, uh, "If you pay twenty bucks, we owe you a really good show, right? And we better just play our hits and play it safe. Uh, for five bucks, though." It's okay if we suck, which is cool because sometimes we're going to suck. <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, that's such a, such great advice that translates to stand-up. Go see comedians at the cheap shows and the showcases and the open mics because you might see them bomb, but you know what? You're going to see them working on stuff and get to see stuff develop and get to see them taking chances that they're not going to take on the big show. The big show, they're going to do the stuff that's already been through that process. Yeah, you're going to see some real shit. I mean, I saw a guy uh, at an open mic bomb and then just wreck the lobby. I was like, 
Fuck, that guy's going through some shit. You mean walk out and just like smack things around? And- yeah, walk walk out and just all the stuff that was like on the lobby table, just fucking turn it all over. I'm just like, holy <laughs> shit. I was emceeing at Laughs Unlimited one time, way, way back. And they were redoing the main room. So we were performing in the front room. And a dude told the whole audience that they sucked, walked off stage, slammed the doors, and I have to go up after him. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what do I say? So I went up and I'm like, that's right. You guys do suck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, do double how, down and just be like, yeah, he had a point. How dare you guys not laugh at his jokes, you right. creeps. Um, yeah. So it... And, and you know, the whole thing that I talked about, about it being fun to be on the road with someone to get to see material develop. We actually have fans that have watched our material develop also, though. For and sure. Uh, you know, I think it's fun for them when they come up and be like, oh, man, I remember when that bit just started. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and mean, it was awful. Yeah. And, and I mean, not to make this too, like, stand up comedy oriented, but it's, you know, it's true. I mean, and there's jokes that you believe in that suck and you keep trying them out. And then eventually if you know, they sometimes they get better and I've, I've bombed with bits and then, you know, somebody will see me six months later and be like, yeah, I never thought that was going to work. Right. Right. Um, Oh my God. I can think of a couple. I, I remember when choke one of your best bits. Yeah uh was struggling i remember when it was brand new and kind of meandering and pointless i also remember the the kid eating the grapes at the grocery store yeah that that (laughs) joke sucked for a while too dude it more than sucked it was like why what what's wrong with you why would you tell that story right that joke has (laughs) that joke has no humanity uh, just about you being a jerk and almost killing someone right. in your <laughs> <I> mean, carelessness. <laughs> to be fair, half my act is about me being a jerk. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's true. You know, sometimes you just got to move stuff around and, and that's the thing about my, my act is uh, I need to talk through the shit. That's the only way I make the jokes work. So, you know, right. I, I rarely will come to the stage with like something tight. You know, I'll usually go out there and bullshit about the subject and hopefully come up with something on stage. And, you know, that's how I've written my, you know, I've now I'm three hours down and, you know, 90 percent of those were ideas that I talked about on stage and then kind of came up with. Right. The, the rest, you know, either on stage or over coffee with you or with Daniel or with uh, uh, somebody else whose opinion I trust. And you've had a, jokes that you'll tell me over coffee that are literally my favorite jokes that you've ever told that you're still trying to make work on stage. Yeah, there was a there was a joke about uh, sharing sharing a song with, with your with wife, like a ro- yeah. with a romantic partner, and you know how those songs you know trigger all these memories. And I told it to you over. I think we're eating. We might have been eating Mediterranean food. Yeah, we were at falafel. Yeah. And, uh, I remember you laughing so hard and being like, that might be my favorite joke that you've ever written. And it still is. I mean, that that is a beautiful joke. And I've done, thank you. And I've done that. You know, I, I struggled with that joke for a long time 
and it never worked how I wanted it to work. And right. I, I did it on my last record and it crushed. And I was nice. like, cool. I've, I've, I finally have committed to recording the definitive, ver- <laughs> the definitive version of that joke. So that's the best. Uh, when I want to go back to your childhood, how old were you when you started boxing? Uh, I was 13. Yeah. Were you a fighter before then? Uh, yeah, I mean, to a degree, just uh, because, you know, I, I kind of had to be. I went to a rough school uh, in junior high, and it was just like, you know, sometimes you'd get into a fight, like right. at recess, uh, just a, a thing that happened. Uh, but more than anything, I was super bored, and I was shoplifting a lot. Okay. And so... I never what kind got, of things did you shoplift? Uh, Nintendo games. Uh, oh, sick. Yeah, albums, you know, CDs, cassette tapes. God, what was your MO, man? This is not easy stuff to steal. Well, as luckily. A, as a fellow former shoplifter. Yeah, when I was 12 or 13, uh, MC Hammer was super popular. Oh, and so pants. And so hammer pants were like a, <laughs> a, a, a thing that was acceptable to wear. So I would just wear these ridiculous hammer pants. And I'd go into Target and I would just rob them blind. Oh, man. My favorite shoplifting that I witnessed from a record store was uh, these guys took my friend Ryan. It was his older brother and his friends. They took Ryan and they had him go to the girl at the counter and flirt with her. And he had like a mohawk and a plaid jacket and a plaid trench coat, you know, very punk rock. and, And it was a punk girl working at the counter. And he goes, hey, what's the alarm sound like? I've never heard it go off. And she goes, oh, go ahead and walk through it. Like, here, take this through it and it'll go off. And so he does. And as it's going off and him and her are laughing, they walk out with like half the store. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's not a bad hustle. That was pretty good. Yeah. I, but, you know, I never got caught from the stores. I, my dad caught me. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. I used to have this big trunk that I kept a lock on that I would put all my winnings in. And, okay. Uh, and I remember one day I came home from school and I went into my room to play Nintendo and my trunk's lock had been busted off oh. and uh, there was nothing in there. And uh, I went into the living room. So dramatic. I went into the living room and my dad had put it all in the fireplace and was burning it as kids. Oh, you're kidding. No. And uh, Oh my God. Yeah. I was just like, hi dad. And he's like, you're in big big trouble because he knew you couldn't have afforded it oh no dude like i i it was clearly an elaborate hustle i had hella shit (laughs) you were like dad i i was selling drugs for that it was an honest (laughs) right 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 it was an honest barter Uh, yeah dude i was fucking busted but they were like you're a fucking criminal we don't know what to do with you uh you're gonna be in even worse trouble so let's send you to boxing. Okay. And, and so I went with, to the police athletic league and that's where I ended up going every day after school for the following three years. And then I would go all day when I dropped out of school. And how old were you when you dropped out? I was, when I dropped out of school, I would dropped out in ninth grade. So I was a ninth grade dropout. I was 14 when I dropped out. And, and your parents let you? Yeah, they were just like, you know, they were so caught up in my mom's whole deal 
where right. so I was just like, fuck it. So I did, you know, from the time I was until I was 15, I was at the police athletic league in Reno. And then I came to Sacramento and, and got enrolled in the golden gloves program here in SAC. And how were you? Oh, it's good. I was a really good amateur and I wanted to be a pro, but I wouldn't have been a great pro. I, I would have been an okay pro, but okay. I, and I was, I was boxing at the time at 160 pounds. Uh, and I knew that my frame wasn't really built for 160. Uh, so I was like, oh, I'll be a light heavyweight or a cruiserweight as a pro. And uh, I, I would have done okay. I would have made some money, but I also probably would end up you know, with brain damage and, and definitely would have probably lost vision in my left eye because I had a detached retina. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, uh, when I went to get licensed as a pro, they uh, basically wouldn't clear me. The doctor said, I won't clear you, but I know a guy that will. And I was like, oh, wow, wow. that sounds fishy. Uh, and the, was the detached retina something that had happened in the ring? Uh, yeah, I imagine from sparring, you know. It, you I mean, don't remember a specific incident where it happened? No, I remember having symptoms, though. I was getting flashes in my eye okay. uh, where it looked like like a lightning bolt was going off. And I was like, oh, that can't be good, but I'm sure it's nothing. Uh, and I continued to spar. But it's a good thing I went to the doctor, uh, the ophthalmologist, to to clear me because, uh, yeah, I probably would end up, you know, losing that eye or at least losing vision in it. And so then, at that point, you you shifted and started managing fighters, or I'm I'm not sure the the link here. I know eventually you end up. Yeah, that was a few years later. I so in my early my late teens and early twenties. I decided I'll just go get a real job. And I was working part-time at Tower Records for a minute. And then I got a job at Borders and I just started working as a manager of Borders. And that was, you know, eight years of my life. And then I uh, started managing fighters uh, and training box uh, MMA fighters for boxing uh, specifically. So I was working with, with them with their hands. And I was also training in Muay Thai at the time. Over with, okay. Andy, over with Andy K up in, uh, in North Sac. But it was, uh, you know, that was probably, you know, many years later, probably 2004 when okay. I, I started doing that. But then I ended up uh, investing in a, a gym called Devastation Company. Shout out to Brian Palmer, my uh, who now runs Claim Steak Brewery. But uh, he yeah, was my, yeah, we yeah. performed there. That guy's cool. Yeah, he was a partner there. He was one of the better kickboxers in North uh uh, or in, in North America at the time. And we decided, Hey, let's go into business together. And so we did. And then we had that gym for a couple of years. And, uh, before I was spending most of my nights doing stand up, I was spending it in the gym, you know? And one of the people you managed, I believe, uh, was your wife. Yeah. Dan- Danielle, shout out to Danielle just has a, a brand new baby boy uh, named yeah. Dean. It's adorable. And, uh, yeah, she was uh, training to be a professional kickboxer, and so yeah, she was one of the one of my one, one of my clients as well as my wife. But we had a couple of good pros. We had Joe Vea, who uh, you know fought at flyweight, and we had a guy named Trevane Smith, Tremaine Smith, who went on to have like thirty pro fights and a couple in pretty big organizations. That's great. And your your uh, Danielle stopped fighting for a similar reason to you, right? Didn't she yeah, actually, get some she had damage a, to an eye? A detached retina in the same eye that I did. Isn't that weird? Oh, damn. Yeah, that is weird. What are the odds of that? 
So what's more brutal, you in the ring or you at a roast? Uh, you know, nowadays at a roast, for sure. I mean, I could, <laughs> pro- I could probably still fight, but, you know, for 30 seconds. No, I met you in your prime. Uh, oh, me in my prime. I mean, I was a pretty good boxer, but I'm a, I'm a good roaster, too. So, although I don't do much roast. I don't know. I, that's a tough question. I, I would say I'm probably a better roaster. Let's talk about roasting real quick sure. um, because it's in the news right now. So, so, you know, people are, people are relooking at the way Britney Spears was treated uh-huh. with the, with the documentary about her. And yeah. I remember, um, uh, what's his name? The Scottish feller. Craig Ferguson. The late night show. Ferguson. Yeah. I remember Ferguson at the time being like, Hey, this isn't cool to like chew these little kids up and spit them out when we're done with them, you know? Right. And I respected him so much for that. It's interesting to me that like more than a decade later, now the rest of the world's caught up. (laughs) Right. One of the people getting dragged during this is Sarah Silverman. And she's kind of saying, yeah, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I wish I could undo it. She didn't say she was sorry, but she said, I wish I could undo it. But she's also saying, hey, they hired me to roast. That's what I did. Right. Like it's kind of on them, you know? Yeah. And I, I was mean, wondering if you have any thoughts on that whole thing. Well, roasting to me is so strange because it's, uh, you know, some of the most, you know, PC, you know, social justice warrior types also like love roasts. So, and roasting is just ba- basically being mean for sport and picking out right. the, <laughs> the, the absolute, you know, easiest, thing about the other person to make them feel sad about. And a lot of times it's stuff that is, you know, deep childhood wounds. And they're like, we're, we're, we're going to do this and it's all in good fun, you know, and everybody hugs it out afterwards. And I've done roasts, I've been roasted. And most of the time it's a good time. Uh, But at the same time, like at the bottom, for the most part, it's, it's bullying for a crowd, you know, it's it's public bullying. Have you had a roast hit you in a way that you it made you feel lousy about yourself or like, where it actually like, hurt you? Like hurt my feelings? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think that's kind of I think that's kind of part of it, you know. I'm I, it's so easy to be like, "Oh yeah, that didn't hurt my feelings." But, you know, I mean, I've said awful things to people in roasts. Oh you god, know? you have. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, I've teased you saying Johnny's not happy with a roast unless unless at least one person attempts uh, makes an attempt on their life before the evening's over. Right. And I think, you know, and I don't do roasts anymore. I've been asked to do them a million times. Oh, when did you make that decision? I didn't realize that. Oh, I haven't done a roast in maybe five or six years. Oh, uh, I, you know, I, I, if I knew that, I'd forgotten. Yeah. Because uh, I don't, I don't do them, but I like to roast you. You're the one and only person I roast. Well, I mean, it's different when you're kind of like roasting a really close friend of yours. I sort of know where the limits are. Right. And plus, you know, it's green room shit. You know, I mean, roast and talking shit. I mean, that's that's part of stand up comedy in spite of, you know, what certain people think. Uh, A big part of stand up is, you know, once somebody's bombing on stage, having a laugh at about it at the bar. You know, we we all do it. And when I'm bombing, I fully expect people to be doing it when I'm bombing. So, dude, dude, there's video footage of you and I coming out of a show in San Francisco the same day that I did Doug Benson's podcast. Right. So I'm on a high and then we come to San Francisco and we both eat turd sandwiches on stage. (laughs) 
Yeah, for like a really important audition too. Oh yeah, and but I'm just completely <laughs> giving you grief about it the whole way to the car. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like, only could have been between two friends. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was, uh, you know, that it was funny because you were you. I think you were doing a web series at the time, so yeah, every moment of that was captured and right. Yeah, it and was, I look bad. It's not a good look. Yeah, you know what's funny is like uh, there's a part uh, the person you had edited, a uh, very nice girl named Danielle. Uh, she, I remember there's one part where she like they're showing me on stage, and they kind of do like they do a second camera shot, and it's somebody yawning <laughs> in the in the middle of my punchline, and I, I hit I sent a message to Danielle, and I was like, hey, like maybe could you save the guy yawning? <laughs> Like maybe that could have hit. We're roasting you even in the editing. Right, right. And then she's like, oh yeah, that wasn't even from your set. That was from Joe Klosik's set. (laughs) I was like, oh, thank you for the fucking villain narrative that you, like, (laughs) my my first experience with, uh, you know, the the fucking showbiz uh, ambush. (laughs) Oh man. And that's the worst. That Like, like I wouldn't, I, I know better than to do that now. I went and did a show once. Uh, there again, it was a, a big show. There were supposed to be industry people there and we get there and, and they were, the industry people were there. Unfortunately, there was no audience there. It was literally these two industry guys in an empty room. So you get to bomb for them. So we just got to bomb for them and dude films it and then puts it on YouTube with this explanation of, Hey man, you should see what comedy's really like. Cause sometimes you don't have the crowd and you just got to be professional and do it anyway. So he has this tape of me on stage for five minutes with no laughs. Cause there was literally no crowd. And I right. wrote him and I was like, what the hell's the matter with you? Why on earth do you think I would want that on YouTube? Yeah. You know, why that's would a- I want anyone to see like that was your failing and now it goes on YouTube and looks like mine. Right. I remember there was a show we did in, like the co-headlining thing. Oh, it was when we were doing special snowflakes. Okay. And we did a show in Reno and it was a, it wasn't a good show. It was just kind of a mass show. We didn't bomb or anything. Right. But I remember that guy, the promoter put our entire sets and we both did 40. He put, <laughs> he put our entire sets on on YouTube like it was our spe- like a new special or something, and I was like, "Dude, take this down! Like, <laughs> what the fuck are you doing?" Oh man! So um, do that. so you've got this this boxing thing, and then that starts to to dry up. Yeah, um, you're a huge music lover. Oh yeah. That's one of the things you and I became friends, kind of bonding over. In fact, you came to my house when we were first getting to know each other because I was having a yard sale, and and you like bought a Carpenter's record, and I was yeah. like, oh, this guy's cool, like, yeah, right, because <laughs> he knows the Big Star and Cheap Trick are dope, and he likes the Carpenters, like, yeah, that's, yeah. I bought a car- <laughs> I bought a Carpenter's record from you, and I, I think I bought a Cheap Trick record from you. Nice, um, but but you never ended up. You know, on on stage with a band. I know your brother has yeah. played in some bands. You you never yeah, ended up managing a band. No, no. I yeah. I've always that's one thing where I've always been uh, just stayed in my lane. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm such a huge fan of music, but I know that I have little to no uh, 
you know, skill as a musician or a vocalist. Hey, that didn't stop me. <laughs> hey, you know, you, when you got a when you got a dream, you owe it to yourself <laughs> and others to to really chase after it. <laughs> so you you get into comedy, um, and I talked about it in your bio, but it, it really was you, you went fast, and yeah, yeah. so you got some blowback from open micers, one-nighters, uh, I don't know what you want to call them, but from people that were your peers and then suddenly you were getting booked ahead of them and pushing ahead of them. I remember they called you a cafe comic, yeah, which that, I still love. That's the best. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the terms that was thrown thrown at me by an old sack hack from, uh, you know, and, and what people don't realize, Keith, is, you know, about the time I got started around 2010, 2011, uh, that was really the rise of the Sacramento comedy scene doing actual stuff. You know, be, before that generation, there was like, I mean, Brent Weinbaugh called it Hackramento for a reason. He called it Hackramento like in a publication. So it hurt like the nickname. Stuck. <laughs> right, right, right. It hurt. <laughs> it did sting. But you know, the, those hacks were the guys that were, were doing shows at the time, you know, and, and right. doing triple runs and all this nonsense and uh, nothing against triple runs. I know it's, it's like a, I've done one myself. It's like a coming of age kind oh, of thing, kind of thing. They're awesome do. in an awful way. I mean, they work, they work, but it's, it's just part of one of those rites of passage as a romance to them. Right. And so, you know, but guys that were doing those kind of runs were uh, so mean to me when I first started, you know, and uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't have uh, an immediate friend base really in stand up. You know, I, I, I hung out. One guy was nice to me when I first started and that guy ended up being such a dirtbag. And, but, you know, you, you kind of <laughs> hang out, you hang out with the one person that, you know, is kind of, is kind of nice to you. And so, yeah, I had terrible friends in the comedy scene when I first started. And, uh, but yeah, I was considered a cafe comic and that's what uh, one of these hacks called me. And I was like, I mean, Luna's is probably the funnest place to perform. So I don't see really kind of what the problem is. And, uh, but I kind of, that was, dude, that was honestly kind of a war cry when I started working clubs was I was like, well, yeah, I guess I wasn't just a cafe comic, you know? And, uh, right. So I, I appreciate, I appreciate it. And, and I did appreciate it then, even in a weird way, even though I didn't really know what he was talking about. But, and then the, the next phase was, you know, I mentioned that comic saying to you in a green room that you don't have an hour. (laughs) There's a, there's a documentary about Boston comedy called when stand up, I think it's called when stand up stood out. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it. Um, and there's a scene in there where one of the old guys is talking about, I think, Bobcat Goldthwait, but like Stephen Wright and then Bobcat Goldthwait both like hit the stage and then started climbing the ranks pretty quickly and got on late night pretty quickly. And this guy is there saying it wasn't their turn. Yeah. And I'm watching this like yelling at the part. TV, like, you don't got a turn, motherfucker. <laughs> But you you dealt with some of that. What was that like to have comics being like, you don't have an hour, like you're not ready to feature. You're not, you know. Well, I mean, the media reaction is, uh, you know, consumes you with self-doubt where you're like, well, maybe I don't, you know, maybe. okay. this guy, this guy that's been doing it for so long uh, thinks it's impossible to. Maybe I don't. But, you know, I think maybe I I was kidding myself. Right. Because these are people you looked up to. 
Right. And the, the first kind of the, the, the benchmark that I hit where I was like, Oh, maybe I'm actually good at this was when I got past the punchline, you know, and uh, I, I got an audition at the punchline. I had been doing standup for one year when I, I got an audition, I got up one time at the Sunday showcase and Molly, who uh, is amazing and uh, does an incredible job kind of curating uh, comedians from the local scene of San Francisco Bay Area. She, she's uh, a legend. Yeah. And uh, an amazing person also. But Molly, I did one show at the Sunday Showcase. I waited six months to go up. You know, I, I started going and people were like, uh, you know, maybe it's too early to go. And I'm like, well, let me just try to make a friend if nothing else, you know, you, for sure. Yeah. You, you meet other comics that might be cool. And so I was started going to the Sunday showcase and I was going probably every other week for six months. And then finally Molly, cause she was still at the time doing the showcase, she was booking it and they don't pre book it. You kind of go there and then she starts picking, you know, people. Right. Out. And they're like, yeah, you're going up next or you're going up and two people or whatever. And so, yeah, I, I went up and I did a set the showcase and I killed and Molly was like, that was really good. Can you audition to host at Cobb's on Wednesday? And I was like, yeah, sh- yeah, sure I can. And then I went to Cobb's and I killed that, uh, killed that audition. And, you know, I had an email giving me dates on my way home. Which is, I mean, it really is unheard of. And I, people outside the industry may not appreciate that. How, how long did it take you to go then from being an MC to featuring? Uh, four years. It took me four years, but okay. you know, I mean, I was featuring when I had been doing standup for only five years, which right. is, you know, pretty at an, at an A club, you know, at is several, at an A club, right. several A clubs, you know? Uh, and then I, you know, she, the funny thing is she booked me originally to host for Moshe Kasher, which uh, I was super excited about. And then he canceled, he had a TV thing and right. uh, he canceled. I didn't have any dates. And then she's like, hey, I think I'm going to put you with Brian Posehn. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that would be great. And, you know, now I tour the country with Brian Posehn every year. So it's, you know, the world works in mysterious ways. You know, yeah. so it's one of those things where I ended up becoming very good friends with Brian. And, uh, you know, now he's one of my best friends. And I, you know, tour with him about as much as I tour with you. So and, I get, and I'm jealous. I get to tour his... with my two best friends, which is amazing. Yeah. I have worked with Brian at Cobbs. Yeah, that's, uh, just that's just doing fun. a week with him and his audiences. I mean, they're up there with Doug Stanhope's audiences. As far as my favorite, like I just know I'm going to have a great time on stage. They're just so they're pumped to be there. They're smart. They're into it. Uh, the best, and they'll let you go anywhere. Like, For sure, anywhere you want to go with your set, like they're le- at the very least open to it. I made a reference to Robin Williams' suicide on stage. First time I, and I didn't even plan to joke about it. It just came out of my mouth. Opening for Stanhope. And this is one of the nights when Roseanne Barr was there. And this hush fell over the audience. And then one guy in the back starts laughing. And I heard the laugh spread through the crowd as people were like, yeah, it's okay. (laughs) And then I came off stage and and a friend of Robin's, Larry Bubbles Brown, is waiting at the bottom of the stairs. Yeah. And uh, he goes, ah, pretty uh, pretty brave doing a Robin joke. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, do you think it was okay? Like, and I'm, I'm kind of asking his 
permission or, or maybe forgiveness. A, a and he goes, he says, I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I was like, ah, that's it. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah. That, that's, I mean, and that's the ultimate test, you know, and that was, uh, I saw a tweet one time uh, from a comic we both know who sucks. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they, t- they tweeted, they're like, I wish there was a report card that the audience could give you after a show. And I was like, it's whether they laughed or not. That's, I mean, right. There the, is the report cards happening while you're doing it. You fucking yep. dummy, you know? Yeah. Maybe they're going home and they're like, I really liked that guy. You know, yeah. I was eating, so I didn't laugh, but he was yeah. really good. I wish I could have filled out a form. <laughs> yeah. Did you want like a fucking citizenship grade or something? Like, did they think I was nice? I mean, get the fuck out of here. So I like to, uh, I like to ask people about their day jobs. It's a big part of anything chasing the arts, especially in the United States. Um, you, you're going to have to have day jobs. Right. Tell, tell me about an experience that you had where you were uh, on cloud nine, your album had hit some benchmark. You're at your day job checking to see how your album's doing. You're feeling great. And then you crash back to earth. Yeah. It was, you know, it's, I was working for the County of Sacramento at the time. Uh, I was working in finance. I was a retirement counselor, 403A plans. Uh, oh man, not bad for a ninth grade dropout. Right, right. I did okay for myself. So anyways, I'm working at the County, <laughs> working at the county and uh, you know, I, even though I'm making a decent living, I'm spending as fast as I get it. You know, that's just the nature of me. And right. uh, so uh I'm checking my shit at work and I'm, I hit number six. I'm, you know, the sixth, the most downloaded comedy album of that day, uh, is Tangled Up and Plaid, my first record. And, uh, I'm like, it's amazing. My break's coming up. I'm going to go celebrate with a Twix bar and a Diet Coke. So I go, I get in the, get in the, (laughs) living rich, man. Yeah. Gonna gonna go party. Right. I get in the elevator and I go down and there's like just a little corner store right down there by Cesar Chavez park. And, uh, I go down and I, I, I go to get this uh, Twix bar and this Diet Coke and my debit card declines. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, yeah, I still suck. I Did suck. you try showing the guy at the counter? Yeah, I'm just how like, well your album was I'm just doing? like, I'm just like showing him my phone. I'm like, look, I'm six. That's amazing. <laughs> I can't that's I, worth, that's I can't, worth a Diet Coke. Right? I, can't, I can't be broke. Right. <laughs> but boy, was what, I, uh, What's the what's the worst and or weirdest uh, day job you've had or day job experience you've had? Oh, this is even? yeah. I mean, this is. Uh, I worked one day. For, I worked for one day at a uh, a Christmas tree uh, lot. Okay. Yeah, one day. This is actually a bit that's going to go on the next record. But I uh, I worked for one day at a Christmas tree lot. I remember first off, uh, day starts at five thirty in the morning. So I'm already, uh, I'm already like not, not super hyped about it. I, I know the way you live. You may as well just stayed up. Yeah. yeah. You're a night owl. Right. Right. And so it's five 30. I get there and, uh, I'm like, Hey, you know, Johnny Taylor reporting for duty, you know, ready to go. And, uh, they're like, Oh, you got to go over there. And, uh, uh, the tree truck's about to show up and I'm like, okay, tree truck. That sounds fun. And so, <laughs> so I go over to the, to the, where then these huge trucks have hundreds and hundreds of these huge Christmas trees. And, uh, I'm like, okay, so like, you know, what, what do I do? Do I just like, do I start getting ready to set the trees up or what's going on? They're like, no, you got to catch the trees. 
I'm like, <laughs> catch the trees. I'm like, yeah, uh, the guy, the guy driving the truck, he's going to climb up there on the trees and then he's going to, uh, there, he's going to throw them down to you and you're going to catch the trees and you're going to set them in the order of the kind of, uh, the kind of tree they are. And what is this peg? Uh, this paid, I think, $7 an hour at the time. Great. And so I, I, I'm like, okay, like, I'll do it. And then so this dude just starts fucking hucking these trees down like lawn darts. <laughs> I'm literally thinking I'm going to catch it with my chest and it's just going to fucking impale me into the ground. Like, <laughs> and so like he's doing that. I'm just fucking dying. I'm like, this is horrible. Like who, like they should really warn you that this is part of this job. And so I catch trees for an hour straight. And, uh, I just, I just leave. (laughs) I I remember like walking away from the trucks and just telling the dude, I was like, Hey man, you don't even have to pay me. I'm just going to leave. Keep your $7. Yeah. I'm just going to go. And he's like, you are. And I was like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, dude, I are, I are. And, uh, just bounce the fuck out of there, dude. Uh, but yeah, that was my one hour that I worked for a Christmas tree lot. That was one of the weirdest, jo- weirder jobs, you know? Yeah. I think, I think I only beat you by a few minutes. My, my <laughs> job at a gelato shop where they checked my references after hiring me and teaching me how to scoop gelato. Oh, they're like, listen, we found something in your background check. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we're going to go check your references now. I was like, why? <laughs> I knew they were bad. <laughs> You're like, please don't. Please don't. Right. Please don't check the references. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, stop. Which which one of your jokes did I pick up? No, from. Uh, what is that joke from? Uh, yeah, I do say it. Uh, so oh, that no. Ha- that's from the, uh, the colonic bit. Does that happen to you? When I first started, my delivery was affected a lot by Steve Martin because I just watched so much Steve Martin. And then when I got into Mitch Hedberg, I started to sound like him for just a minute. But it was hard not to because he had such a unique voice. Yeah, if you listen Um, to a lot of Hedberg, you will slip into Hedberg. Yeah, and and if you hang out with your nephew, like eight-year-olds will laugh at anything. I remember we were driving down the street and we saw a chocolate lab. And he goes, Uncle Keith, what kind of dog is that? And in perfect Hedberg, I was like, that is a chocolate lab. Do not take a bite out of it. It will not be delicious. <laughs> like, and he was dying laughing. Um, so after that, he'd always say, hey, talk like that again, Uncle Keith. Talk like that. Right. And, um, if, and if the joke doesn't work, you just go, all right. But, oh, man, I remember one time being on stage at the Uli, and I said one of your lines. It just fit as a tag for one of my jokes and you were in the audience. As I said it, I looked at you and went, Oh shit. You're like, what the hell? I'm just like, Keith doing my act right in front of me. (laughs) The balls. It's never happened to you that someone's sort of style and affectation will like influence you too much or you'll, you'll catch a sound like that. No. Or, uh, didn't, Steve Fury get all of Sacramento saying playboy. Oh yeah. If you hang out, if you like are doing shows with Steve Fury at all, you will end up doing part of your set sounding like Steve Fury. It's just like he's another one where he has a very unique delivery, just very the way, strong voice, and the way he says it for whatever reason just kind of kind of gets in to your mind, right? And, uh, for some reason, you start uh, impersonating it. So yeah, I remember there's a time when a lot of comics in Sac were purposely trying not to sound like Steve Fury, and there, I mean, there's a couple out there right now. I'm not going to mention any names. There's one guy in particular that he just is doing Steve Fury on stage. I'm like, 
I'm like, you can't do that, dude. That's like, that's not your thing. You are doing a Steve Fury impression with your material. You know, it's just very strange. (laughs) Well, listen, man, it was awesome talking with you. We were going to go on the most epic tour. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We We, We started it. We performed sold out shows in Chico. Yeah, two shows. We did two. We did one in SAC also. The the Chico one, the, the place was packed to the gills. And oh, it's one of the most fun shows I've ever done in my life. Yeah, it was and it was overfilled. just you and I trading road stories on stage. Yeah, it was yeah, it was overfilled. You know, they had to turn people away. It was uh man, it that was amazing how well because we didn't really run through it, you know. Right. We, we kind of talked about it a little bit. But it but, was almost like all those hours and hours that we've spent in the car together were practice. Yeah. They yeah. paid off. You know, yeah. And we had, you know, these kind of linchpin, linchpin stories, uh, you know, like four or five of them. But then uh, there was just so much riffing. And God, it was just like this organic, really fun show. And I remember when we were done with it. Uh, and the we opener, like, the opener's got killed too. Our hands. Right, right. The opener's killed too. So it kind of like set a real uh, right. good tone for the for the show. Jesse, and, yeah, Jesse crushed, and Alicia Je- did a set. Give me Jesse's killed. last name, my, Je- I'm Je- my Jesse Rivera. Yeah, it was Jesse Rivera, Rivera. Uh, Tina San Lucas, Alicia Davis. Tina who, killed. Who, Alicia uh, Davis killed. Yeah, Alicia's now my girlfriend. So uh, because know. she killed that hard, Johnny's yeah, like, oh god, she, I gotta do this. She killed so hard that uh, I I needed to start a life with her. Uh, but you know, it was like a super fun vibe already. And so they like the table was set for us to really go out there and rock it. So I remember being a little afraid that because uh, we had the show at the punchline coming up like three days later. I was right. like, man, I hope we can do this again. I hope this wasn't just like, you know, a one time like it worked really well. And then uh, the next time it would be different. But man, the other show was really great, too. And then we were like, we have a hit. Yeah. Like, but. At the punchline show already, we were feeling the effects of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. It was already it was getting my weird. second. It was, I believe, my second to last show. Yeah. I think attendance might have been weird for it. Like, the, in, it sold tickets. There were people that bought tickets and didn't come. Yeah. I remember. Which is unusual. Yeah. I remember that. Like, because that people were starting thing. to worry. Yeah, people were starting to stay at home even then, even before there was like a former formal shelter in place. I think people. Well, were, this is March already, so we were pretty close to the shelter in place. Yeah, I think shelter in place was March twelfth, and this was okay. March fourth. So it was like it was right before our birthday. Uh, then on March fifth, I did an all stars show also at the Punchline. Yeah, I and then Sunday I was in Santa Cruz, and the Santa Cruz show was like you know, normally we'd have a good 30 to 40 people. We had like 12 and right. that was it. That, yeah. Then no more shows. Was Crow's Nest? Yeah, that's usually packed. Right. And it was very, very, I still killed, of course. I'm amazing. Yeah. yeah uh, but that, <laughs> I know, I understand Crow's Nest now. I figured them out and I can always kill there. That yeah, was me, a hard nut to crack though. <laughs> me too. I, rem- I, I remember we took two uh, talented, but very green comics there. And, uh, we very green at the time uh right one of them in particular has gone on to be one of the best comics in this whole town but becky lynn yeah and, but we went with yeah exactly and we went with them and i remember being like now listen things probably aren't going to go how they 
they're going in your head, you know? You're gonna bomb. Yeah, you're you're you're, you're probably thinking it's gonna go one way, but it's gonna go the other way, probably. So just be and that's just prepared. the crow's nest. You, you you have to bash your head against that wall a few times before you find the soft spots. Right, and yeah, they both flamed out and ep- epically. And then they, on the way home, have to deal with the way I drive on 17. I love taking those curves really oh, fast. 17 yeah. is a really fun road to drive, but not for my passengers, apparently. Yeah, very frightening. Uh, and they were like, well, we're probably going to die because of Keith's driving, and we're probably okay with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like that rare time where you get to die twice in one night. <laughs> but yeah, they... Uh, <laughs> It was, yeah, it was an epic struggle. So, but, you know, and then we, we both did great. And I, I remember them just being like, why? Why did this happen? And we'll say, you, know, you just got to figure it out. There's something in me that when I know they're good and I know they're going to survive it, there's this sick glee I take in watching them go through that rite of passage. Oh, no, because I've I never mean, been there, you know. You've been there and and you're like, I know you'll get it, but, you know. Come, come get smacked in the face with reality. You've been killing a lot lately. Come die again. <laughs> come remember that this is still out there. Yeah. Listen, man, I could, this could be a two, three hour podcast. I, we haven't even gotten into the stories that we tell in our stage show, but hopefully nice. on the other side of this pandemic, we get out there and we do the stage show. In the meanwhile, super excited about Confetti. That'll be coming out from Stand Up Records uh, this summer, right? Yep. Summertime. And hopefully by then you'll be able to go out and tour and support it. Uh, All of you that are watching comedians on Zoom shows and tipping and supporting, oh my God, thank you. I mean, it's not live stand-up. It's not the same. But what a lifeline. And and at times it has just been the only thing that got me through. It meant so much to me. So, uh, And then those of you that are supporting our podcasts and whatever else we're doing, buying our books, thank you really appreciate that and i know johnny you, you've done a lot of those and yeah it's yeah been great that the audience will turn it turn out for us even in this completely weird circumstance yeah i mean zoom is is not preferred but fuck i don't know what i was gonna do uh with with all these days uh that i've had the last year and then my podcast has honestly saved my sanity so and and we'll put all of this in the description but real quick where can people find you your stuff and your podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. Oh yeah, you can find me at Hipsterocracy on Instagram and Twitter, and uh, listen to my uh, both my records are on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you listen to those. Sometimes uh, if you listen to Sirius Satellite Radio, uh, I'm on uh, Raw Dog, the weirdest name for a for a channel. Uh, I'm on the Raw Dog 99 station quite a bit still, and uh, my podcast just search Hipsterocracy wherever you listen to podcasts. And you still got a website going? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got all that what, shit. www.hipsterocracy.com Nice. I am your host, Keith Lowell Jensen. My producer is Joe Honor. Joe Honor also did the art for the podcast. Our editor and audio engineer is Jack Matrenga. Joe and Jack are with Hyperpixel. Hyperpixel is a production company with a focus on digital marketing and e-commerce, offering daily management of your website, social media accounts, and digital marketing campaigns. Our original theme song was done by the great DJ Reel. Uh, Johnny, shouldn't they go out and check out DJ Reel? Yeah, amazing. Very talented. Super funny, too. Once again, thanks to our sponsor, Burley Beverages, and... uh, 
please go use K, uh, KLJ rules with a Z, all caps. Get your 15% off. If you haven't already, go watch my comedy special, Not For Rehire, on Amazon Prime and leave a review. And again, subscribe and leave a review on this podcast. It helps us a bunch. I love that we're going out to the sound of Johnny taking another big old bong rip. Oh, yeah, beautiful. I'm glad that's making the show. Good night. <laughs> Thank you.